Good evening, everybody. I'm Ian Hislop. I'm head of content at Private Eye. Uh, my job is to separate the editorial and the advertising functions at Private Eye. So I'd like to start by saying thank you very much to HSBC for sponsoring this evening. Um, I should point out they've got a very good deal going on at the moment with their Swiss Sabre accounts and they're offering zero interest, but only from Daily Telegraph journalists. <laughs> this is the 2014 Paul Foot Awards, an institution which celebrates investigative and campaigning journalism. The award was set up ten years ago by Private Eye and The Guardian in memory of the campaigning journalist Paul Foote, who died in 2004. Over the last ten years, the award has been won by journalists who've worked on stories about gangs, corruption, phone hacking, and numerous other stories which might never have come to light were it not for the attention the press threw on them. Here's Ian Hislop on Paul Foote himself. Footy was one of the great campaigning and investigative journalists ever, I think. Um, I'm bound to say that because uh, he worked at Private Eye, but he also worked at The Mirror and at The Guardian. And he was an extraordinary colleague, friend, and I think inspiration. I mean, it's ten years we've been doing these awards, and still the stories he worked on originally keep turning up again and again. Arms dealing, corruption in Saudi Arabia, PFI, police corruption... They're all things that Footy was obsessed by uh, when he worked as a journalist, and they're still things that journalists have to cover. Are you excited by the kind of stories that you're still getting in after ten years of the Foot Award? Every year, it seems to me that uh, we imagine, well, you know, there's been a chilling effect on journalism this year. There's been some new hurdle, and um, no-one will really want to do anything. And then I look at the entries, and I think, what was I getting depressed about? Um, they are extraordinarily um, diverse, interesting, and, I think, sort of high quality. So no death knell for investigative journalism yet? No, if you look across... No, there's no death knell for investigative <laughs> journalism. I mean, if, you look at, if you look across the field, there's websites, there's trade magazines, there's local newspapers, and there's national newspapers. I mean, this is one of the few forum, forar, forums uh, where national newspaper journalists actually meet in the same room. I mean, they're not going to do this with a royal charter, but um, they'll turn up here tonight. And it's a way of um, celebrating the good bit about what we do. Do you have a favourite footy scoop? I think his miscarriages um, were fabulous, you know, Carl Bridgewater, the Guildford Four, Birmingham Six, they were pretty extraordinary, taking on unpopular figures and saying, you may not like them, but they are not guilty, and that is the point. I mean, he was extraordinarily brave in doing that, and he had a great facility for finding the underdog. Yeah. I mean, that's what I found about him. He got very obsessive about certain stories, didn't he? Yeah. Is that the necessary genius that goes with the madness or the madness that goes with the genius of investigating I, things. I think that's right. You have to be interested in the story way beyond everyone else's interest and you have to focus the interest of the editor, you know, who's usually someone like me who says, oh god, not this again, and they go, yes, yes, this again, and again, and again until we find out exactly what happened and something happens. FIFA remains corrupt, PFI is still a complete mess. Yeah. Does any of this do any good? I would say it's the effort of still doing it um, that makes it worth it. Um, Peter Cook used to say about um, satire in uh, Berlin during the 30s, he says, oh, yes, that certainly stopped Hitler, didn't it? Uh, um, and he has got a point, but I think um, the desire to do it um, 
and the ability to still do it is what really matters. It is an attempt to keep public life honest, and that's got to be worth doing. There's such a wide range of papers which get nominated for the Pulford Awards. Are there any you would point-blank refuse? Are, there, are, are any feuds too deep for a nomination? Um, I'm imagining the nomination for Piers Morgan uh, as Journalist of the Year, but um, <laughs> at the moment we're in the realms of fantasy. This year's nominees come from all over Fleet Street on a range of subjects from the lives of migrants to the flooding in the West Country to huge cash bungs at FIFA. Here are the people who wrote the stories telling us a bit more about them. Dominic Ponsford and William Turville of the Press Gazette for Save Our Sources. A little under six months ago, we discovered that the uh, Metropolitan Police had been uh, helping themselves to the phone records of journalists secretly in order to find out who their sources were. So uh, we thought that was rather a big deal, and that's why we uh, launched the uh, Save Our Sources campaign. What kind of form did the campaign take exactly? We launched it on a change.org page on the 11th of September. We asked as many as many journalists as we could and other people to sign up for it, and gradually we built up to around more, more than 1,700 quite influential people. Um, and we also asked every national newspaper editor and a number of broadcast editors and magazine editors to sign a letter which we then sent to the Prime Minister in January. What results have you seen? This week the government's confirmed that it's going to um, change the law and that it's going to uh, urgently bring forward a, uh, a statutory instrument to ensure that the uh, police stop uh, viewing the uh, phone records of journalists without um, the consent of a judge. So. You know, it's been, been a lot of people involved, but we, we take full credit. <laughs> George Bombiot, The Guardian. Well, uh, during the floods uh, last winter, uh, everybody seemed to be talking only about what was happening at the end of the pipe, and no one seemed to even be interested in what was happening at the beginning of, of the pipe, in other words, where the floods were coming from. The, the real issue was upstream, and... The, the great majority of the water in this country falls on farmland. And the management of that farmland is crucial when um, determining whether or not we get floods. And yet this issue has been totally neglected. And it turns out that not only is, is farm management so catastrophic in this country, with the watersheds kept completely bare, being sh- comprehensively shagged by sheep, and... Um, and, and fields being ploughed and left bare all through the winter so that the soil and the water just get stripped straight off and straight down the river. But the farm subsidy system is actually enforcing it. It's actually forcing farmers to keep their land in that state, therefore making floods far more likely. So we pay for the subsidies, we pay billions for farm subsidies, and then we pay billions all over again because of the floods that they cause. So it's not only incompetence, it's state-mandated incompetence. State-mandated incompetence, um, a combination of cock-up and conspiracy. Mark Townsend, The Observer. It's about allegations of sexual assault by Serco, uh, the private firm, <clears throat> by their guards on um, asylum-seeking women who are obviously very vulnerable and in a kind of a place of, of, well, of great vulnerability for various reasons. And it's also about how Serco, with, I guess you could say, with assistance of the, of the government, the Home Office, then tried to cover up those allegations. 
But it's been four years in the in, in telling the ma- and in the unfolding. Yeah, of it, and right? yeah, exactly. But just purely because of the government's aggressive, when I say government, I mean Home Office and Serco, defensive posture, really. They did everything they could to, to stop us publishing, including you know letters, uh, very personal letters to, to, to our editor um, about why we were pursuing a story. So, you know, this is taxpayers' money we're mm. talking about. I mean, they, they were funding this... Um, legal campaign against um, what is clearly public interest article. Um, so yeah, it took took a long time. And what results have you seen since the since the campaign was first printed and well, published? Well, there's various results. I mean, I mean, one of which is various uh, changes within the Arlswood, the, the detention centre in question, um, various improvements in terms of more uh, female guards, less aggressive behaviour from those guards. The male guards, in terms of kind of the barge into women's room, so more CCTV in areas where guards were allegedly having their way, if you like. So there's been sort of improvements, various improvements within Yaldswood, and also there's been two parliamentary inquiries into into allegations, really. One of which is kind of on, on underway. One of which is sort of the various reasons, perhaps, to do what I've talked about, yet yeah. to kind of really sort of gain traction. It's clearly a long way to go in terms of. I guess get to the bottom of what really did happen and how it's covered up, and so what we've got is a is a flavour of a behaviour which is yet to kind of um, of which we're just not digging into. These things take time. Richard Pendlebury, the Daily Mail, migrant lives. Well, it was a series of three articles, feature length articles, uh, really looking at the uh, individual stories behind the headlines are lots of headlines about you know numbers of my immigrants and whether or not they're you know it's a nirvana when they get here but i know it's not for many people so i i sought out um, stories from different communities and also further afield from communities such as in the punjab before they are about to leave for britain and looking at uh, as i say individual stories and the hardships they endure when they come here trying to either earn a living or they're actually sent by their families, sometimes against their will, to become somebody's wife. And what first brought the story to your attention, as it were? Well, the story was really became like a hobby for me because I was. It was suggested to me that I do something about immigration, and then it was. I think it was pretty much largely forgotten by the people who suggested it. And I, because I'm interested, I've spent a lot of time in the third world covering wars and things like that. I was interested in the subject and the people. And so um, I was indulged that I could, almost like a side project, I could go away and in my spare time almost, I would um, work on it. It took me ages, particularly with the, in the Punjab, to find people who were willing to talk. Families, it's a big, you know, honour and face is a big thing. Um, and also finding, um, getting inside these communities and the trust. So it was really something that was maybe nearer to 18 months um, until it came to print from when I was actually... Somebody said, what about doing this? Uh, if there's somewhere that you'd want to take the story next, is there a particular direction that you'd like to see ahead or a particular result that you'd like to see from the campaign? Well, <laughs> I'd like to see them catch the gangmaster, which was the, uh, <laughs> the guy who was pretty much the centre of the first one. And the British police were very interested in my own investigations because it tracked this guy down to a village. I don't think they've caught him. Um, but there are so many of these stories around the world. I mean, we have such a... A uh, large number of different communities from around the world. Um, you know, you could keep doing this quite productively and in, you know, profitably, and with great interest, you could do it for the rest of your career. Richard Brooks and Andrew Bousfield from Private Eye. We over a couple of years we wrote about um, corruption on a major uh, 
contract between the British government and the Saudi Arabian National Guard, which is essentially the Saudi Arabian royal family's private army. Uh, it's a massive contract for, for telecommunications equipment, a couple of billion pounds, the latest phase of the contract. Um, and within it are bribes worth about 15% of the contract. The, the defence company, which is EADS, it's a part of EADS, which is now called Airbus, part of Airbus, um, pays these bribes to Saudi officials through an offshore network, um, and it gets uh, reimbursed for its work by the Saudi Arabian national government. Um, but it's all the contract itself is actually signed by the British government, not by the British company. The British company is just a subcontractor. Right. It's really the British government that said, we'll deliver all this equipment to you. And wow. as part of that, the British company that's the subcontractor to pays massive bribes to very senior Saudi officials. Well, the story came to our attention um, thanks to a very brave whistleblower called Ian Foxley, uh, who was a lieutenant colonel in the army, who'd left the army after his own father had been implicated in a corruption scandal um, in the 1970s. And he, he'd become project director on this telecommunications contract in Saudi Arabia, found corruption on it, and refused to go along with it. He'd not been listened to. He'd, um, he'd tried to alert his superiors to it, alert the MOD to it. They weren't interested. Um, so he blew the whistle. Um, he came back to the UK, blew the whistle to the press here and to the serious fraud office. Um, and we picked up the story and dug a bit further beneath the surface to find out exactly what was happening, what this corruption that he had seen was all about. And what has happened to him since then? Well, he has um, well, he lost his job inevitably, um, owing to some uh, really um, harsh employment law he got no compensation right. lost an unfair dismissal case um, uh, but he's responded very positively and set up an organisation called Whistleblowers UK which campaigns for improved treatment of whistleblowers um, which I think is a cause you know, long overdue for some recognition we really do need to transform the way we treat whistleblowers in the UK at the moment the best that can be said is that some organisations try to protect them. Actually, more often than not, they get punished. But we need to go beyond that and, uh, and actually reward them. If there's one direction you'd like to see the story go in from here, hmm. where would it be? I would like to see the Ministry of Defence held accountable, so I'd like to see them investigated. That really is the next step. We've, got, we've only made the first tentative steps to showing what the MOD have been involved in. Approving corruption post Al-Yamama, post BAE, uh, is just, it's just incredible that that was still going on as recently as late 2010 and probably still going on now. Um, they need uh, investigating um, so that the whole issue of corruption in arms contracts um, is, is addressed. Jonathan Calvert and Heidi Blake from the Sunday Times. Well, the, the story um, is about FIFA and the, the contest um, for the rights to host the 2022 World Cup. Um, and what we uncovered was a cache of hundreds of millions of documents which show how one man in Qatar, a man called Mohammed bin Hammam, uh, waged a, a campaign um, of corruption to buy up support for his country's World Cup bid. 
and we published the story in the summer and it was uh, it, we gave an awful lot of coverage to it at the Sunday Times in the first week there were uh, 11 pages and then we, and we ran it over about four weeks um, and it's, it went around the world and, and, and uh, FIFA were, were their typical selves and, <laughs> and um, FIFA's reaction to the whole thing was just, just to put their hands over their ears and, and just ignore it as, as, they, as they always do um, or in Blatter's case accuse us of racism yes that's true for writing did, the yeah. story and, but, but it sort of ca- it set the cat among the pigeons, and uh, there's no doubt about it. The, uh, the FIFA is sort of under, it, it completely embattled at the moment with one crisis after another as a result of all of this. What happens next? Do they reschedule the World Cup? Or well, we've just heard today that the World Cup is going to be held in the winter, which is a complete crisis for <laughs> football leagues around the world um, because FIFA voted to have it in a place where it wasn't actually possible to play football in the summer because it's too hot, um, which is just one of the brilliant consequences of their decision. Uh, so that's that's kind of that's the scheduling. I mean, whether. We would like to keep the pressure up for the vote to be reopened and rerun in, a, in an open and transparent way so that the other bidders in the contest kind of have a chance at a fair outcome. But to be honest, I think with FIFA there's a snowball's chance in hell of, of anything like that happening. And of course a lot of it depends on and who, who should be the president. And uh, at the moment uh, the current president of FIFA, Sepp Blatter, is standing for re-election. Um, there are a lot of people standing against him. There are a lot of people who don't want him to continue. And, and but, uh, but as long as he continues, he, you know, he's presided over this very, very corrupt organisation. And as long as he continues, it's, it's not going to change. And in the interest of fairness, we should point out that another team from the Daily Telegraph was shortlisted, also for a story about FIFA, but they were so secretive that they declined to be interviewed. Nonetheless, they were on the list as well. We go now to the announcement of the winner. I have to say that from what I know of Paul, and I hope my um, distinguished former editor, who I inherited Paul from, Richard, would agree, um, he would have loved this list. Their workers being exploited, the police behaving badly, outsourcing going spectacularly wrong, Saudi Arabia and arms deals. God, how long did Footy spend writing that stuff? Uh, The countryside being ruined, and two stories about football, which I would never have run. Uh, (laughs) Footy would literally have been in heaven. We have to come to the major announcement, and given it's the 10th year, and given we've increased the money, we have two winners. We have decided to split it. And the two winners are the Sunday Times for the FIFA story and and the man footy lured over from the dark side, Richard Brooks for Saudi Arabia. Could the winners come up? And Andy Bousfield. Well, we're, we're obviously really, really delighted. I mean, it's, it's, um, I think there's probably a lot of journalism awards around at the moment, and, which is great for journalism, but um, I think the one award that we have the most affection for is, is the Paul Foote Awards, and, and we're always delighted to be nominated for it, and we've consistently lost, and so, so, to, so to have won this year is, is absolutely fabulous. And, and we couldn't have done it without um, 
terrific editors at uh, the Sunday Times, in particular the editor who, who, who gave the story um, the backing. He, put, he gave it 11 pages in the first week, which was unheard of apparently apart from in war, according to our, um, our managing editor, Charles Hymas, who's probably the hardest working uh, executive in Fleet Street, and he put an awful lot of work into this too. Um, and so thank you very much. We're, we're really, really delighted. I'm just going to chime in very quickly and say we also really want to say a huge thank you to our incredible lawyers, um, who, <laughs> which is one of the reasons we haven't been sued over the shortlist this year. Um, and uh, so Pierce Armour and Pat Burge, who just keep us safe and go through every word we write and have done an incredible job and are just fearless and forensic and brilliant. Usually the music comes in when anyone... <laughs> <laughs> um, but also thank you so much for, for recognising the work because it's, it's sort of incredibly frustrating investigating an organisation which is as robustly unaccountable as FIFA is. Um, and you sort of get the feeling that in the event of some sort of nuclear holocaust, FIFA's headquarters would be the only edifice on the planet left standing, and Sepp Blatter would emerge and declare he was standing for another four years. Um, so so uh, despite the fact that they refuse to change, we'll keep going, and thank you very much for recognising us. Uh, thank you. Um, as, this, this is wonderful to um, be presented with an award in Paul Foote's name. Um, it is about 10 years ago that I started working at Private Eye um, after, really, really thanks to Paul Foote. Um, and, you know, he was probably the first, I think he was the first journalist I dealt with. Um, I worked in the government at the time, and Paul was the first journalist I dealt with, which I think counts as quite a good head start. Um, on the competition. Um, there are a few people to thank, I think, for, for the contribution to this story. Um, two Ians in particular. Uh, one's a great, upstanding character of huge integrity, not afraid to speak truth to power. And the other's our editor, who, um, who I must thank for sticking with this story and other uh, difficult stories that we've... Uh, forced him to print over, over the years. Um, but, but the other Ian I really, really must thank is Ian Foxley, who's the, who blew the whistle on this story. He quite literally brought this story out of Saudi Arabia, at great personal risk um, and at some cost. I also want to thank many, many colleagues at the Eye. Um, the, the main piece of work we did on this was a pamphlet, as Ian mentioned, that um, I think... You know, I think that combined, you know, the eyes, state-of-the-art technology and superb <laughs> design skills. Um, and I really want to uh, just have a word, really, for, um, you know, the, the, the people who support us every week in making it, made this particular piece of work look, look so nice. Um, Bridget, Glenn, um, our, our sub-editor, Tristan. Um, it's a great team to work for. I really value it. Um, thank you very much. I was Andrew Sophie. Um, I'd like to say thank you very much. Um, I think whistleblowers probably five years ago used to be known as courageous sources, and now they're called whistleblowers. And I think a lot of them uh, really want to uh, fight against people who kick down and take all the honey for themselves, and there's some morality involved in what they do. And I'm looking forward to going to Saudi Arabia next with Richard, which I presume we'll be doing with the money dressed as women, and we'll be uh, applying for the visa next week. So, (laughs) 
At the end of January this year, cartoonist Martin Honeyset died. Honeyset's career in cartooning had stretched over five decades, and he was one of the eye's most loved contributors and cartoonists. His spidery, horrible world was one which gave a lot of eye readers a huge amount of joy over the years. To talk a bit about Martin, I spoke to Ken Pine, a close friend of his and one of the eye's other longest-established cartoonists. I first met Martin... In 1972, I think it was, and it was a cartoonist convention at Butlins, honestly. At Butlins? At Butlins. And I was at the bar, and I remember having a few words with him, and after his, afterwards his wife told me, she said, who was that you were speaking to at the bar? And he said, oh, some another bloody cartoonist. <laughs> and... Um, the next day, there was a, a concert by Bert Whedon, some people may remember. And it was in this cold, drafty hall because these conventions were held out of season. And I found myself sitting next to the honey sets and I said, uh, it's a pity they didn't splash out a bit more and get Chuck Berry. And then Martin said, oh, do you like Chuck Berry? I said, well, better than Bert Whedon anyway. <laughs> and it, so he thought there might be something to be worth talking to. And everybody was complaining about the cold. And so Martin poured out a box of matches, tore up his programme and set fire to it to generate some heat. And that virtually summed up all I knew for Martin for the next four decades. He, uh, he found himself living in Hastings. And I remember he didn't know anybody there. Not a soul, not a, not a seagull. But he thought that was the end of his life. But he didn't. He, he picked yeah. up. And he met lots and lots of people in Hastings, everybody. And he loved living there. And um, I remember at the funeral, I was going to say that uh, one of the reasons he loved living in Hastings was he could walk along the seafront and uh, see the the, uh, bedraggled, weather-beaten, toothless people that he loved to draw. And uh, most of them turned up for the funeral. Really? (laughs) (laughs) And But the thing was, I've never known um, such genuine sadness and shock at a cartoonist's death. And um, people are really very, very sad about Martin. And uh, most cartoons, no, not most, a lot of cartoonists, you... Uh, you feel when they when they do go, you feel like just sending a wreath with good riddance written on it. <laughs> but in Martin's case, as I say, there it was a genuine sadness. And I remember. There was a, a private eye function where, I think it's one of their tw- 25th birthday, where um, it was at the Mel Cowman Gallery, and, and, the, and the people that ran the gallery made a cake and a huge thing, and it was a work of art. And it had, I remember, it had happy birthday, private eye written on it, and they, and they wheeled it out on a trolley, and it was a gatto, wobbling it was. And Michael Folks, who was an old punch and sometimes private eye cartoonist, of, uh, who could be a bit difficult, shall we say, uh, demanded that somebody uh, cut him a slice and bring it to him. So Martin, as I say, always willing to help, said, uh, Well, do you, want to, do, you, do you want a bit, Michael? And he said, Yes, honey, said, bring me a piece of cake. So Martin picked up the whole cake and put it on his head. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he never lost that tearing up the uh, programme and setting fire to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even though he, he did quieten down an awful lot in his, in his later life. But he was a, a, a wonderful cartoonist, probably 
if somebody said he was the best cartoonist this country produced, you couldn't argue with it. He was a great car- cartoonist and one of the great gag cartoonists ever this country produced. And it's a shame he wasn't really recognised as such when he was alive. I don't think he was recognised as such. I think it, part of it was his very quiet personality. He wasn't pushy. And that's what made him such a really smashing man to know. Yeah. Did he come to cartooning quite later? No, life? he didn't. He, um, he uh, went to... He went to New Zealand. He was a lumberjack, and he worked for the. He worked as a stagehand for the uh, New Zealand Ballet Company as well. It's quite strange all these yeah. jobs that cartoonists have before yeah. they yeah. become cartoonists, yeah. as it were. Yeah, I know. Well, Everyone's got a few of them. Yes, it's, away it's usually as a result of nothing being left at the job centre. <laughs> but uh, and uh, he and then he went to Canada, and then he came back to um, he came back to to Britain. And uh, he got a job as a bus driver. And, uh, and then he, he didn't like that very much. So he started sending cartoons in to punch. I think his first cartoon was published in the Daily Mirror. And then he sent to punch, and he was almost an instant success. Because these days newspapers don't really have cartoons in quite the same way that they're submitted. They have a regular cartoon, they have a, a large one. Mainly, yes, it's yeah. a, a political cartoon and, and some nothing will have else. A, some will have a map yeah, some, in front of it. Yeah, or, I know, but it's topical, yeah. topical cartoons. There's no gag cartoonists, as we say, joke cartoonists, which, uh, which the main attempt is to be funny. Yeah. Now they just want cartoons that make a point, I think. Yeah. So Martin, like Michael Folkes, who I mentioned before were great artists so the market had virtually gone for them there was only private eye left really yeah. for a great uh, spot cartoon uh, a social cartoon which which was fun, which is funny there's no no other magazine that does it now why do you think that is uh, money the first yeah. the first um, people to go when they when their budget cuts are cartoonists, it's, mm. it is true because uh, then it's photographers, and then the right. last resort resort is journalists. <laughs> so, and then it's sub editors. So that's why there's so many mistakes in newspapers right. these days. Yes. <laughs> Let's talk a bit about the world of Honeyset, if you like, because mm. every cartoonist seems to have a feel about what they do. And hmm. in Honeyset's cartoons, everyone is miserable yeah. and bedraggled, as you yeah. say, yeah. and everyone has a permanent mm. yeah. frown and people are being horrible to each other very, yeah. very funnily, yeah. almost every time. I, I, was, I was with him once and somebody asked him, why do you draw people like that? And he said, well, that's what they look like. And I think <laughs> that explains it. You know? And I remember... He saw people? Uh, yes, yeah, so he saw people. Yeah, he, saw, he liked... Uh, Chaos, yeah, and, and uh, although he's, he, he appeared very quiet and diffident, he, he liked chaos, Martin, and uh, he always, um, always amazed. <laughs> if he's if he's in heaven, he'd I imagine drawing people, and he'd um, and and God would look at a picture and say, I haven't got a cauliflower here. <laughs> I, I've got one eye two inches higher than the other one. I've got nostrils the size of apples and. I don't look that old. Yeah. You know. But I actually think, given the choice, Martin would be happier in hell because it is more chaotic and there are more interesting faces to draw. Yeah. <laughs> and he seemed to start off 
more with more innocuous cartoons, I think. So yes. one of my favourites of his mm. is two uh, two mm. hunters. They look like in mm. Africa. One of them is holding on to the other one, who is dangling into a ravine. Oh, yeah. and yeah. Th- you can just see yeah. above the ravine, and the one who's holding mm. on to mm. his friend says, "For God's sake, Jackson, let go of the mm. elephant," mm. which is a wonderful. Mm. It's a cartoon about the thing mm. that the cartoonist mm. hasn't drawn. Yes, you know, and that's yes, a much gentler. Yeah, it was. I think what it was that was punch. Punch okay. had a more conventional humour and it didn't like to anything too too unpleasant it might upset the aged readers at the right. time so that w- when he got into private eye they were they were more adventurous and uh, they took a chance yeah. and i think his 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 more famous ones although he did much much more for punch his more famous ones i think are in private eye the one of uh, the surgeon handing a patient a form and the surgeon is saying to the patient it just says that you agree to me taking the bits home for my Mm. dog yeah that's a recent one yeah (laughs) yes yeah he he just did draw the way people saw him i remember once down in hastings he was asked to uh for a charity fate they asked him to sit in a tent and draw people And they were bringing their kids in, and he was drawing them as honey set people. And as he said, people, the parents were almost sticking the pencils in his ear, you know, <laughs> so outraged that he saw he saw their children like that. That's kind of asking for trouble, isn't <laughs> it? It was, yeah. Yeah. Is there a prevailing trait for cartoonists? Out of the cartoonists you've met, is there one thing that unites them in their character or in the way they yes. see the world? Yeah. Or? Um, no, they all they all come from very very different backgrounds, and the only the <laughs> only thing they have in common is they're a bit odd. Right. They're all um, they're all slightly antisocial because they all work on their own, th- sitting thinking up jokes, and so that's about to affect you mentally eventually. That, that is, uh, that's the, the only thing they all have in common. They're a very strange bunch, but they are getting uh, fewer and fewer all the time mm-hmm. for the reasons I just said. The markets are much fewer. And um, uh, I've seen an awful lot of cartoons come and go. And uh, a lot of them can't take the rejection, and it is constant rejection. Well, it sounds like if you have to send in so many and yeah. you get maybe a couple of weeks published, yeah. it's, a life, lucky, it's no. a life of yeah. basically... Rejection, yeah. Yeah, almost yeah. always being told, yes. sorry, not this one. That's right. Because I've always said the thing is, if um, is always have contempt for, for when your work is rejected and get angry rather, uh, rather than say, well, they may have a point. The only, the only, the only thing is if you get angry... You won't live as long as the people who say, "Well, they may have a <laughs> <laughs> more successful for a shorter time." Then, Is yeah, 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 yeah. Live fast, uh, draw fast, die young. <laughs> <laughs> Campine, thank you very much. So, Is that all right? Is that, that all right, <laughs> darling? <laughs>